All right. So um, I'm super excited for this one. Um, as you can probably tell, I still have no uh, uh, kind of like, I guess, pre <laughs> pre-planned intro. There's no read for any of these. But this is the Signal podcast, the official podcast of the Signal Awards. Yours truly, DeAndre Royster, the managing director of the Signal Awards. And um, so this is our third episode. And um, as we continue to like talk to inaugural year winners, I thought would have I thought it would have been super important, and I think actually telling like the full scope of Signal, um, the most important. Well, I don't want to say the most important because obviously the entries are the most important part. But I, I think like one A one B are to me, and this is just like the way I think out loud, just kind of giving more like behind the scenes kind of feel. The jurors are the most important part I think of any award platform because obviously people, you know, have preconceived thoughts of you know award award platforms and programs. Um, but uh, nothing is more important than the actual jurors. And with that in mind, we're also going to be having a lot of our inaugural year jurors on and mostly like, you know, people who have returned from last year and people who will be returning again next year. And with that being said, I couldn't set up a better intro. So I would just, you know, throw it to the most, one of the most important guests we've had on the podcast so far, even though it's on the episode three, you'll see what I mean. Uh, Maurice, just, you know what? I'm not even going to, I won't do you any justice. Go ahead and you know, <laughs> intro yourself like only you can do. Well, my name is uh, is Maurice Cherry. But first of all, thank you for for having me on the podcast. Uh, what can I say? I've had a long history with podcasting. I started yes. creating podcasts in two thousand five. Um, the current podcast that I have now is called Revision Path, which I started in twenty thirteen. So this is our tenth year. Uh, we just had our five hundredth episode back in April. And with Revision Path, I interview black designers and developers from all over the world. Uh, our podcast also has the distinct uh, pleasure of being the only podcast in the Smithsonian's permanent archives for the National Museum of African American wow, History that is and Culture. Amazing. <laughs> and and it's interesting that we're doing this with the podcasting awards because, and DeAndre knows this, I've also created an awards event. So yes. from 2005 to 2011, I created and ran uh, the Black Weblog Awards. So I've been on many sides of this as a creator, as an adjudicator, as a juror, of course, now for the Signal Awards. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Listen, all of that rich history that you have, um, and obviously being a, a person who has been in podcasting since its inception, really, uh, up into where it is now, we'll have like a good conversation about, basically, we'll kind of break down like the steps uh, that got you on this path um you know some of your obviously many highlights right and then obviously uh bringing you up to where you are now but uh just as an intro in the connection basically the bridge through signal um you are one of our jurors our inaugural year jurors from um the jump you kind of believed in this whole thing and to see it kind of unfolding in real time uh you were very hands-on with your approach uh you are very much a straight shooter um, and you're one of the people who in this podcast industry, I think, deserves more flowers. So a lot of this conversation will be just highlighting all the many dope things and um, all of the groundwork that you basically laid that some people are eating off of right now, if you really want to be technical. But <laughs> um, So your initial start into podcasting, what was that like when you first found out about podcasting or when you started to see it become like a viable platform. I know early on podcasting was kind of getting confused for like internet radio, right? So people mm -hmm. were kind of confusing the two, but it's kind of on demand audio creativity or this platform that kind of lends itself to people like you. Uh, how did you first like getting get involved in the podcast world? Like what was your intro um, and what were your, pre, your preconceived thoughts and then what kind of became more of a reality as you began your journey? It's a good question. So my intro to podcasting actually probably goes back, honestly, even further than my uh, first podcast I recorded in 2005. And I say this because um, back in my, I say back in the day, like when I was in middle school, high school, et cetera, I was a musician. So I did a lot of Ow. recording, doing stuff with audio, mics, amps, et cetera. So I kind of already knew about that from the music standpoint. And when I started getting into podcasting, it I did it initially as a way, honestly, to keep uh, keep in touch with friends of mine that didn't live here in Atlanta. So right. I, my first mic that I got when I started to try podcasting was like a $10 GE stick mic that I got from CVS, like nothing fancy or anything like that. Um, and I would just use that to record directly into windows media player and just send that wow. off as an MP3, no editing or 
<laughs> or nothing. Wow. And, you know, in, in terms of stuff back then, you know, and this is actually uh, as a precursor to Twitter, Twitter actually pivoted from um, this podcasting startup called Odeo, O-D-E-O. Wow. Oh, that's talk about a throwback? What? Okay. <laughs> and I had been using Odeo for audio blogging, just kind of, you know, testing out little things here and there. Uh, but it wasn't really, at least from the perspective that I was at, I didn't really see podcasting as a thing because what you had back then were large media companies, NPR, New York mm-hmm. Times, et cetera. They would do their, you know, maybe bulletins or radio shows or what have you. And then just release it maybe in the afternoon yeah. as an MP3. So, like, for example, I worked um, at AT&T from 2006 to 2008. And I would, like, just download whatever shows, like News and Notes or Morning Edition or something like that. I would just download those MP3s to my, like, creative zen brick of an MP3 player and just listen to them at work because we didn't have, like, Wi-Fi really or so. Well, actually, my player didn't have Wi-Fi. But, yeah. Uh, but it used to be just the domain of like large media in terms of distribution. Like when you think about podcasting now, pretty much the the playing field is fairly level in terms of the steps it takes to create a show, distribute it, market it, gain an audience, et cetera. Right. And back then it wasn't such the case. One, just because a lot of that technology didn't uh, exist, but then that community and that infrastructure also didn't exist. So you could create, right a podcast, but like, where were you going to put it? Because right. iTunes hadn't really accepted podcasts as part of this sort of directory structure as what you would see now Very through true. Apple Podcasts. So discovery was really tough. You could record a show, you could put out X number of episodes. I think the first show I did, I I think I did about 50 episodes or so, but like no one would know what it where it was because there's no RSS feed. I didn't have an audio host, which is not to say that they didn't exist back then. I just didn't have one. All I had was web space on a web host. And so I would just post my MP3 and go. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Right. Um, You were early on in terms of like, you know, creating and then platforming. Like there was really no space that kind of existed. That was like, like catering more so towards like audio creators of, uh, I guess, like long form talk content. Right. At that particular time. Not not in a and I would say like a widespread sort of um, format that you would see now. So what you did have back then, and I think it still exists now, uh, were camps. There's like a a camp style of uh, conferences, bar camps, which was co-founded by Chris Messina, but but like bar camps, pod camps, et cetera. So Atlanta had a pod camp. I want to say this was in maybe 2005, 2006. And that was when I actually got to really meet other local podcasters because there was no like meetup group or anything like that. So this was a way for us to meet each other, to fellowship. Uh, also, I think right around that time was when the Georgia Podcast Network was born here in Atlanta that was headed up by Amber Ray and Rusty Tanton. And it was essentially just a podcast network of shows within the like tri-state Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina like area. Right. So, like, you know, talk about your shows, maybe get guests, things of that nature. So I got to meet some podcasters that way, but all of this was like in person. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Georgia Podcast Network was a website, but even it didn't have like a full distribution outside of maybe just a single RSS feed that had every single show or something Mm -hmm. like that. So the the distribution and the discovery back then was still, I think, one kind of a problem. And then two, finding the audience because, you know, people were listening to MP3s. I mean, there were of course, the iPod, there were other types of MP3 players and things like that. But uh, people were listening to music on their phones, but not so much podcasts. It just wasn't right. a part of the general like listening zeitgeist as it is now. And that honestly really didn't happen. I would say in in full force, probably with Serial. I think Serial was kind of the, the one podcast that broke through to the mainstream because it got, you know, yeah. profiled by the New York Times and stuff. Yeah, I think so too. I think more so like news podcasts around that time were probably more, um, I think have more value. They just carried more value across like, I guess what industry would probably consider value, right? Yeah. Like driving content. Um, and so I think that you're, you're absolutely right. That's one of the first ones to break through and like kind of be like a, a, a known podcast brand that you could probably have a discussion with people who aren't just like, entrenched in like audio creativity like specific like you can have a like an outsider would probably know at that point right 
Yeah. But I mean, I think to that end, though, and then this sort of harkens back to what I mentioned earlier, a lot of this was still in the in the vein of journalism. I mean, right. you know, Sarah Koenig is a journalist and Serial was the sort of investigative look into this incident that happened. So it still kind of fell within the realm of like journalism and not I don't want to say hobbyist, but it, it, it I would say back then it almost felt like you were either doing a news show or something else. Right. So there weren't at least these sort of clear cut categories like you have now, like comedians doing shows or yeah. or recap podcasts or things like that. It just didn't really exist in the flavor that it does now, which is not to say that it didn't exist back then, but people would not have been able to, to discover it and find out about it because media also wasn't writing about it. Like media was really writing yeah. about podcasts. Very true. So you're inception like so early on you jump in right you're creating you're 50 episodes deep you're basically at this point like a pioneer <laughs> early on in like podcasting and so when you fast forward to i guess where you see like this explosion of like podcasts being used across different mediums across different platforms what would mm-hmm. you attribute it to and where, where would you say the actual real shift took place because in my mm-hmm. mind i'm thinking about like 2010, like 2009, 2010-ish is when I started to like use blogs to kind of leverage like WordPress. I started to add audio in there. I was also working in radio. So I was trying to find outlets and ways to like get my newer audio content like out there mm-hmm. um, outside of like terrestrial broadcasting. So like, where did you see the shift and what would you attribute the shift to where podcasts kind of became like this mainstay or this new medium for creators to use? Yeah. So I think what it was, I think it was maybe a couple of things. One was kind of a shift from blogging to video slash audio. So like from blogging to multimedia was that sort of shift. Because what also ended up happening, I would say, in this period between 2005 and 2010, you started to see the advent of computer technology that would make recording video and recording audio a lot easier for the layperson. Like. Right. Before, you would have to go to a place like Guitar Center or something to get decent microphones or something. But now you could maybe go to a big box store like Best Buy or even have one sent to you via Amazon. So, like, because the tools were available and they were easier to get, that made creating content easier. Also, you had platforms which now allowed you to be able to send this stuff out. Like, I want to say by 2010 or so was when iTunes started to... uh, to have podcasts as like part of a directory sort of thing along with music. So mm-hmm. you now had a place to not own, you not, you now not only have the tools and the software to create, but you had a place to distribute for discoverability. So I think as technology got better, that just enabled more people to allow themselves to create. That's, that's one thing. Second thing, honestly, I think people just started seeing money in the field. Right. I mean, we talk about cereal, for example, and how it, it grew because of, the story, but like the hook for a lot of people was the ad, the the Mailchimp ad that was at the beginning where the woman said like Mailchimp or something. That was yeah. <laughs> a hook for people to, I guess, get into the show. Which is not to say that you know, and someone from Mailchimp would have to sort of verify this, whether or not that bit like an uptick in subscriptions <laughs> or something. But right. I think what, what what happened was you started to see companies look at podcasting and say, like, oh, this is another form of media where we can advertise. And once yeah. money starts to get into the field, more people start to get interested because more people want to make money. So right. it, it's it's kind of, I think, both of those things in tandem happening, which started to allow people to see podcasting as a medium that they could get into. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great point, too. And that's a great segue into my next question for you is post-2010, you, so it, you, you, you've seen this opportunity to kind of create an award platform, right? And Honestly, you were super early to the space, just like you were super early to the space of podcasting before it became, I would say, white hot, obviously, given the pandemic and everyone kind of being at home and having more time and uh, wanting to create and wanting to have an outlet. Uh, Now you fast forward from where you have this idea of creating an award platform. Talk about that a little bit and like kind of like what the inception was to kind of like the seed idea. And then the way you went about executing and like some of your learnings um, early on being <laughs> one of the yeah. earliest podcasting awarders in the platform in the, in the field. So, yeah. So when I started the Black Web Blog Awards, I kind of had the idea for it initially back in like 2004. Um, and then I first started it in 2005. And the reason that I did that is because 
I was an active blogger at that time. There were a lot of other people I knew who were blogging, you know, black people, et cetera. Um, but the blog awards that existed at the time just did not really recognize us at all. You had uh, two awards. One was called the bloggies, which was uh, done by Nikolai Nolan. The bloggies is short for the weblog awards. And I remember they would have their award ceremony every year at South by Southwest in Austin in March. Then there was a completely separate awards event also called the weblog awards put on by like a completely different person, all this sort of stuff. The commonality that they share was that black people weren't anywhere. Like we weren't nominees. We certainly weren't winning awards. And I just felt like I knew enough people, black people that were blogging where we could actually start to get recognized in some way, but I don't know what that platform looks like. So let me just, I knew HTML. I was like, I've got some web space. Let me just hop into Photoshop, draw something up real quick and make it. And so that first year was really, oh my God, that first year was rough. Because again, in terms of technology, the, te- the technology was not there. So we we counted and had all the nominations and votes. All of it happened through email. So everything was emailed, which meant people could easily like spam it or spoof emails and stuff like that. So I don't think we got a really good robust system until like 2000, I want to say 2006, 2007. We used right. this web forum platform called Wufu and basically just kept begging them. Wufu was was uh, founded by Chris Coyer. And like, I, I was just like begging them, like, please, like we need more space. We're getting all these <laughs> entries in because from 2005 to 2006, and really every year after that, the traffic quadrupled for the award. So people wow. really wanted to be a part of it. We would expand categories. We had celebrity winners like Kanye, Questlove, Tyra Banks, et cetera. Um, to the point where NPR recognized it in 2007 and they had announced the winners live on one of their shows. I think it was, I think it was news and notes that did that. And what's so interesting is that after that happened, news and notes, shout out to Farachadea, who's the host. Uh, they had this segment afterwards called the bloggers round table. This was like after the the winners came out, they like created this new segment. They'd have it every Wednesday called the bloggers round table. And the bloggers would always be people who won Black Web Blog Awards. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, now, how did they find these people they, and know they, that? They were paying attention <laughs> to the list. They see, they see the vision. They had to jump on, on, jump on the train while it was moving. <laughs> and so I kept the awards going until, honestly, until 2011. Like 2010, 2011 was when I decided to sell it. Because, right. look, I started it when I was in my mid-20s. I was about mm-hmm. to turn 30. I was like, look, I don't have the the time, the space, the capacity. Because even though I was doing all this, it was all bootstrapped by me. I was not getting any sort um, of like financial kickback or support or sponsorship to make any of this stuff happen. Wow, wow, we had man. big companies that were interested. Uh, well, I'll, I'll put it like this. We had companies that showed interest, like mm-hmm. Johnson Publishing Company, for example, was super interested at one point in the Black Weblog Awards. They wanted to to buy it and call it the Ebony's. And I was like, I don't know if we want to do that. And <laughs> right. yeah, it, was, it was like a whole thing and never really sort yeah. of like, like happened. And I ended up selling it uh, to this uh, black woman. She's a lawyer in Austin, Texas named Gina McCauley. She had a blog wow. called what about our daughters? And so she bought the event for me. I sold it to her and she included it with this programming event that she had put together called blogging while Brown, which was like a weekend dedicated to like, black people in social media and so 2011 was like the first year i think there was an actual like physical award ceremony with awards and she kept that going until i want to say 2016 2017 and kind of kept it going but having been able to sell the awards that sort of freed up space for me to do something else to showcase what black creativity was doing and, and being showcased online because you think about all of the the memes and designs and things that have happened in like the early days of the internet and how much of that culture is driven by black people and how so little, if any of it is even recognized as being done by black people. Correct. Um, and so even with the awards, I had this idea to do something around black designers because I was a black designer. A lot of my colleagues were black designers and that's sort of the initial spark that created revision path. So I started that in 2013, and that was just an online magazine. And then roughly between 2013 and 2014, 
it morphed into a podcast, which is, you know, kind of the format that it's in right now. But that whole time back then, I mean, you just kind of did stuff because the opportunity was there. There were no gatekeepers. There were no, um, there was no one telling you that you could or couldn't do stuff. And the technology moved at the speed of your imagination. I mean, you think about now, now is I think another crucial time where this is happening, particularly when you think about AI and machine learning and, you know, synthetic media and stuff like that. People are able to create because the tools have, the tools and the technology have made themselves available to the layperson where anyone can make stuff, which just reminds me so much of that early time of the web where you, it was just like wide open space to do what you wanted to do. And maybe it, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't, but at least you had the space and the freedom to make that happen without any kind of like, you know, overarching body telling you that you could or couldn't do something on a particular platform. Right. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head on several points. I think, we are in another, it's weird, we're in like such a trend, I, I guess I want to say transitional moment, like with the emergence of AI and mm-hmm. like assistant, like creator tools who you really have, like, it's crazy how, how much more expensive podcasting used to be back then, right? Like everyone would get the, you had to go to a studio, there was this whole elaborate setup, then you had to pay for someone to produce it, or you had to spend countless <laughs> hours editing things down. So I imagine you were in a position where you're like, okay, cool, now I'm facilitating like a community of sorts and i think a war community is like really important especially for podcasting and this is kind of like my thought process behind it is like when i got the opportunity to become managing director of signal i seen an infrastructure that was already created for award platforms but more specifically this one is specifically podcast based right so mm-hmm. i was like wow you know what i had already done you know already already an editor worked in radio created like infrastructure, you know, podcasting for iHeart. And then, you know, so fast forward through all those things. And I look at where we are now, how how ambitious and how hardworking you had to be in order to (laughs) one person run an award platform, create podcasting and and create content, plus the host of other things that you probably were involved in. And I think this is a, a, an important aspect that I like to kind of talk about um, in the podcasting community is facing burnout, right? So how much is too much and how little is too little, right? Like where, where did you find your happy medium where you like, man, like I'm working 17 hour days on average, going crazy (laughs) meetings, emails, follow-ups, comms, like creator stuff, like assisting (laughs) other people with their podcasts. Like where, where did you find a happy medium where you didn't have to just, I guess for lack of better wording, like, throw yourself so much towards podcasting and audio creatorship and started to like catch a stride and like get a good pace and then make it make sense for you and your lifestyle. What, what, what point did that actually take place for you? If at all, if at all, that I was going to say, like, have (laughs) I reached a happy video? Um, if at all, I want to say for, I, I can use my show as the example, since that's, that's the one I've done the longest. Um, I reached that equilibrium. I want to say, like in 2015, 2016, mm. it was right around that time. Uh, and honestly, the the way that I was able to reach that equilibrium is because we got some money. Because, <laughs> because Simply, then I, I, I got, we started I got, to buy funds. Yeah, we got our first sponsor in 20, I want to say 2015 was Mail, MailChimp was actually our first sponsor. Um, so MailChimp sponsored the, the podcast. And then after that, I think we had like a couple of small companies here and there, but then Facebook signed on and became a sponsor in 2016. And that injection of cash allowed me to throw money at the problems that I was having with trying to get the show on. I'm like, wait, I can, I can pay my editor more to prioritize episodes and I can pay for this and pay for that. And that is what allowed me to do it. Cause before, yeah, it really was, like just me, like I brought on my editor in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I was, you know, kind of paying him. I was also running my studio at the time, so he was getting paid. But like, I really wanted to try to separate what I was doing with my studio from what I was doing with my show. And right. once we started to get sponsorship and started to get that sort of, you know, social proof from larger companies that are like, oh, the work that you're doing is is great. That right. is what really helped to reach that happy medium. I mean, prior to that, again, the technology and the tools just weren't there to allow you to really 
be a one man outfit uh, in a very holistic and healthy way, right. you still have to kind of do everything. I mean, I still would hop into Audacity and, and do stuff and then turn around and write the show notes. And then I'm also editing everything in Photoshop and I'm hosting it on the site that I design. You know, like it's, it's all of that stuff that has to go into it. Um, and having that sponsorship allowed me to say, okay, you know what? I can buy a WordPress theme and I don't have to yeah. worry about that. And I can right, pay an right. editor and I can like pay an intern to do these graphics. So I can then focus on just the interviewing and that's it, you know? So right. it was right around that time when it started to happen. And with the freedom of doing that, it allowed me to start to create systems. And so right. the reason that I'm able to put the show out now every week is because like revision path kind of runs like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Uh, we, we have at least, a month and a half of content already booked. Um, so I, so like that also allows me to take small breaks in between things. Like, I mean, our show has run continuously every week since we started. So, <laughs> so, the, so if you're listening, you'll think like, well, damn, does Maurice actually take a break? Maurice takes a lot of breaks. <laughs> right. I, do, I do at least a two, a two week break at the end of the year. I've started mm. putting like about a one week break in the middle of the year. You know, especially that. if I know that I'm going to be like a month or so ahead, I can like not interview for a week right. or two and be good and then come back to the mic kind of refreshed. So I have to kind of squeeze those breaks in. But the system allows me to do that such that content is still being created even when I'm not the one creating it. Right. That's amazing. And I, I think there's a, a lot of takeaway for that. And I, normally with these podcasts, especially, you know, for the signal for the signal, I, I like to make sure that we have some educational value in there for podcasters, no matter what level of podcasting you're at, have you, you could be for, you know, 20 years deep, four years deep, whatever it is into the podcast, <clears throat> into the podcasting space. But I think it's super important to really give, you know, aspiring creators as well as like veteran creators, some tidbits on how they can keep themselves well oiled, refreshed, um, new content and still able to really squeeze, like squeeze those creative juices out because I think one of the things that podcasters run into is fatigue. And mm -hmm. I think when you do literally everything yourself, yeah, it's impressive to say in conversation, but realistically, there's not a lot of shelf life in that, right? Like you get to a point where you've created these amazing episodes and now you have all these new followers and you're finally starting mm -hmm. to see some money. Please throw some money at your problems. Anything that does not lend itself to you <laughs> in, the, in the way that makes you feel comfortable or keeps you refreshed. Because the thing that I love about podcasting is the, um, the the career that it actually has spawned for people, right? Like, this isn't like acting where you get like a crazy, like a 10-year window where you like red hot, like on fire, right? Or like an artist or a musician. You can podcast literally your whole life, you know? And attrition is not that big of a deal unless you're like a rock star and you're going crazy. But I think one of the things that I want for up-and-coming podcasters to kind of understand is that, you know, consistency is key. But more importantly, like you're the biggest asset in the whole creative spectrum, right? Like you're the most important thing. You're the brains, you're the heart, you're the legs. So being able to maintain a lifestyle where you can podcast and, you know, make money from podcasting, but also, you know, afford yourself the type of life that you would like to sustain for a long time, right? So burnout is real for any creator, but especially for audio creators, because there's so much demand now to continue to always be on. Like, most people I know who used to podcast once a month, which is our our current cadence, they mm -hmm. got to a point where they were like, oh, man, I got, I can't wait a month. Like, people asking for these episodes weekly then or biweekly, <laughs> and they start going daily, and they start going weekly. You know what I mean? Like, it's just the you, then people are releasing two, three episodes in, in one week span, and I'm like, geez, do you, I, I don't know how sustainable that is. I think that's ambitious and courageous to take that much work on, mm -hmm. but only because I think people don't understand how much actual work goes into podcasting. And I think 10 oh, years no, ago, absolutely dope. <laughs> yeah, 10 years ago, you tell someone you're a podcaster and they look at you like, there's no value in that. Like get a real job, right? That's I like that's for people to say, get a real job, right? And now you look at the podcasting space and those same people with quote unquote real jobs are trying to break into the space. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. doctors and physicians and, you know, politicians, like people from all walks of life are like, oh, I can just jump in a podcasting field. And then they drown relatively quickly. And there's a reason why. And I, I want people to understand that if you, if, if a person like yourself, I think you're a constant reminder of what success looks like in this field, 
but I think your actual story behind it is much more impressive when you look at how many waves of changes that you've not only just like stood through, but actually like created and roll with you. Like you're surfing this podcast thing now, right? At this point. Yeah. So talk about where you are now and like what your vision is for like the future, like where you're headed with this, whether it be in <laughs> podcasting or whether this is going to morph into like this crazy studio, because I, I have an idea, but I want you to kind of like, you know, spell it out for us. Okay. So, oh brother. So revision path <laughs> occupies an interesting space. It is a black podcast, but it's not focused on politics, news, entertainment, celebrity gossip. You know, there's no celebrity sort of, I guess, component or anything to it. And so when people think about what a black podcast is and how to categorize it, Revision Path doesn't fall neatly into any of those types of categories. Um, The other thing with Revision Path is that because we've done this show for so long, we've talked to people on six out of seven continents, you know, that sort of thing. A lot of educators do use the show like in their classes, like they're teaching curriculum from the show, which is great. But what is also going on right now in terms of how race is being taught with curriculum in schools, critical race theory. So there's now these instances where, you know, even like the, the content of my show hasn't changed, the focus of the show hasn't changed, but the cultural societal things around it have changed. And so now it's like, oh, well, I don't know if Revision Path is is a good thing because it's talking to black people. And it's like, OK, that's what, what's 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 happening here to make it seem like it's now a bad thing. It was not a bad thing before. I don't know. Right. Like the yeah. whole diversity, equity and inclusion sort of uh, movement that I think was really big in like the mid 2010s has started to fall out of favor with companies and other folks now you know in 2023 because just the general politics of this country are shifting so it is something that like i have to ride that wave because the show has not changed society and culture have changed the show has kind of stayed the same and it's all i've always at least sort of led the show from this this platform of like positive blackness like these are all positive examples of working black creatives in the field doing great work and you should know who they are that kind of thing so it's it's sort of riding that wave of letting people know about it in a in a environment where even saying this kind of thing is is now deemed taboo or illegal or something like that which is a it's just a weird kind of time to deal with that that's one thing right the other thing is that it's it's an old show I mean, it's over ten years. Well, it's not over ten years. It's ten years old this year. But it's one of the longest running shows. Like, yeah, it's it's, 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 ten, it's ten years. It's over five hundred episodes. Um, and so, in terms of like people thinking, okay, where do I jump in? Do people necessarily want to jump in at episode five hundred and thirteen? Probably not. They might think, <laughs> oh, I want to go back to episode one, or they're thinking, oh, well, is there like a certain season? And I'm like, there are no seasons. It's it's a right. It's a full, it's a full slate. You can jump in wherever you want to jump in. And of course the show in terms of like some topics have changed as, you know, time has went on. Like I've had people on the show where we've talked about, you know, what's going to happen when Trump gets elected and what, what's going on with your mind during the pandemic. Like we've, we've discussed those things throughout the general, you know, kind of tenor of the show even though it's, you know, focused on something that does not have to do with current events. Current events have found their way kind of into the show. So because it's an older show, because it has so many episodes, it will turn a lot of people off. They'll just be like, oh, this is too much. I don't I don't want to do it. They'll listen to something new that's just starting out that just has one or two episodes because it's an easy kind of starting off point. Right. 500 plus episodes are like, I don't know. Like, like, can I start now? I'm like, yes, you can. Like, you don't have to right. listen to the other 512 episodes right. to get this one. Like, you're you're fine. You can just jump in wherever, um, and you can go to the website and there's a full archive. Like, dive through it. Um, so, where I see Revision Path in the future, I would love to grow it into an actual like multimedia network. I love I mean, that. I knew uh, that's what. That's the idea. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm I mean, so- I mean, one thing is that we've done the show, um, you know, from ten years to now, we've done the show, and it's only just been audio podcast. But even during the time where I've done that, we have had some forays into more editorial things. Like we had a blog with original writers for a couple of years. 
we did a literary anthology for designers from 2019 through 2021. Um, we also have the sister site called 28 Days of the Web through February that like showcases a different Black designer and developer, 14 men, 14 women for every day in Black History Month. We've done that for 10 years as well. So awesome. we've always had this kind of editorial part to it. But now with the current sort of trend of like video podcasts and people wanting to see more, you know, video content, both short and long form, I would love to be able to branch into doing a web series or maybe a live show on Twitch or maybe like a documentary. Because I remember in the like mid 2010s, there was this thing of companies putting out in the design industry, companies putting out documentaries like Envision did this. I want to say a couple of other places did it. And it just would be good for people to actually see black designers doing this stuff. I think yes. it's one thing for people to hear it, but they want to, they want to see it too. And of course, now you've got social media, which is social media was a thing back then. It's certainly not like how it is now, but you have platforms like TikTok and Instagram that are more video focused now um, where like that sort of content is what's going to bubble up yeah. and what people are going to see. But the other thing with that is that now you're creating content not really for people, you're creating it for an algorithm. Like right. you hear so many creators talking about how they have to do, how they, they're asking their audience to like, like, you know, Subscribe. click the bell, whatever, yeah. whatever, yeah. the algorithm picks it up and, right. and distributes it or whatever. And it's like, I'm making my content for human beings. I'm not making my content for, for an algorithm. algorithm. If the algorithm right. picks it up, great. If the algorithm right. doesn't pick it up, I also don't care. But, you know, even as a platform that's distributing, you know, content every week, now you have these other platforms that are vying for the spots that these older platforms used to occupy pretty much solely. I mean, of course, we're talking about Twitter here. Now you've got Spoutable and Spill and Threads and Posts and yeah. Co-Host and Mastodon and Substack. And like, you've got all these other all things. These so you right. have, like, this, this, like, splintering of where you can put content. And sometimes I think the expectation is that as a platform, you need to be in all these places. Right. And right now I'm like, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on, we're on our website. That's it. That's it. Um, yeah. And we are, we are uh, maybe by the time this comes out, you know, knock on wood, we will have launched our subscription platform. So we, we plan will on share. Signal will most definitely support <laughs> it here. So whether it's- Yeah, it, we, pl it, we plan it, on launching a- just like a, it's a monthly subscription platform similar to like NPR plus or something like that, where you'll be able to get some extra content along with the episodes. I mean, it was something that I sort of sat on for a while because there's such a glut of content out there. I mean, there's movies, there's streaming shows, there's of course podcasts and podcasts have all these different artifacts. We are drowning in content. Oh, and I that's think that's another we, thing that I was going to say too. Yeah. It's, yeah. Crazy. But what's been shown over the past year is that even with all this content out there, there is no sort of guarantee of its longevity. I mean, that's true. Streaming services are deleting movies. They're deleting, um, you know, series. I would imagine it's only a matter of time before podcast directories start delisting shows that don't yeah. publish anymore. Yeah. And then it's like, well, where does all that stuff go now? The graveyard. So, I, I I like to imagine there's this content graveyard with all of the things that were made that didn't help, or maybe there's like this deep dive of content that needed to go. And you'll see it at the highest level, but I think you know it's mm -hmm. it's sad to see so many creators have like Yeah, I, I mean oh, I, I'll you, go back to that blog I posted in two thousand and nine. <laughs> nope, it is gone. Yeah, like you're you're calling it a graveyard. I think it's more of a fire pit. I think once it once it falls <laughs> off. It goes into the fire and and that's it. Because like yeah. with the way that content on the internet is, like the internet was never meant to be an archival system. The internet was right. just originally just about research. And yeah. as the the rise of user-generated content came with web 2.0, I mean, think about the and this is even with Twitter in its heyday, but like think about how much stuff people willingly put online in terms of data, photos, oh tweets, goodness. et cetera. And we're talking globally, not just here in the U.S. That's right, globally. Where does all that stuff go? Apparently, yeah. I mean, some of it eventually is going to fall off. I mean, now it's hard to even find an internet, like a blog post or something from 10 years ago. Yeah. It still yeah. has images intact and working links. Like, stuff gets deleted all the time. And there's no sort of real archiving to the web. I mean, you might think, oh, well, what about the internet archive? They're a small nonprofit. 
and they can't archive everything. Like they can't archive right, they can't flash. So right. They can't archive stuff from certain countries. They can't archive any websites that are made through like um like scripting, like, you know, JavaScript or something like that. So any sort of like dynamically generated content pages can't be stored. Um so because of that, I'm thinking as a platform, you know, when I think about the future, it's like where what's the what's the part that I can control? I can control putting the shows out. I can control them if they're behind like a subscription platform. And then the few places that I know are still solidly reliable, like yeah. Apple Podcasts, Twitter for the time being, you know, Instagram, et cetera. Yeah. I can post it to these places and kind of just hope for the best. But I think what it speaks to, and this is something that I think is, is good for most podcasters to think about, is to like, there's there's oftentimes this want to always get more. You want right. more listeners, more audience, et cetera. And oftentimes that is done at the expense of the listeners that you already have. Right. Like work on turning those listeners into rabid fans yeah. and they will be the ones that can help spread the word about what you're doing. This is not to say that you shouldn't also try to court, you know, other audiences through other methods, but focus on the audience you have instead of the audience you're trying to get. Exactly. I think that's the, a really important theme too. And I'm glad that you touched on that. Um, one of the things that, there's this like FOMO, right? In in the community where it's like, oh man, I gotta be on threads. I, I, I gotta, you know, oh, I heard Tubi is supporting podcasters. Let's try to get something <laughs> over there. There's all of these different, there's, there's all of these different platforms. And I think, you know, especially when you look at YouTube, like YouTube is probably, I think has done maybe the best in terms of like helping their creators for like discoverability. And I, I don't know, I, I, I also look at it as like, you know, people feel like, the more places I'm in, the bigger audience I have, right? But that's not necessarily true. You kind of overextend yourself and then your content takes a significant hit in quality and it's a lot more missed opportunities where, where mm -hmm. you are just like your mainstays, like my, our mainstay for Signal, and I think this is probably obviously human, you know, repetition, I guess, more than anything else is that, you know, I leverage, you know, two or three platforms tops and then anywhere else it ends up at, I'm glad the ecosystem found that 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 seed and blew it somewhere where the truth where tree started <laughs> to bloom or grow, I should say. Uh, and you know, but other times you just kind of have to really bet all your chips on quality because if you yeah. don't, you have a whole bunch of content that's either bad or at best okay, but nothing that people are going to be like, you know what, I haven't checked out this particular channel or I haven't jumped in on this particular episode. And yeah. also, I think that's where podcasting has grown exceptionally is the amount of like you know scripted sci-fi right where you once upon a wasteland is a great podcast then you mm -hmm. have like uh, i think spotify did a little too much i think they i think they put a little too much dip on a chip but batman yeah. the unbury series was a phenomenal one i just think that they put i think they overpaid and i think they just kind of it, it was an amazingly created uh podcast i just think they forced it too much but you now have these what i'll call like kind of consider like the cinematic audio version of podcasts, right? Where you have all of these technical sounds and these, the, the sound design is just like a different level. It's like movie-esque sort mm -hmm. of. And so now you see all these different creative pockets in podcasts and especially where you're going to take it. And I see what you've done. And I, I can only imagine like people like you now getting to the point where you're going to have like these studio spaces or these, these companies that are going to cater to more creative and more risk-taking podcasters as opposed to just, you know, satire podcasting or just like, you know, uh, I guess entertainment talk podcasting, which is normally what's going to happen in any kind of space is just like, you know, obviously people love their actors. They love their celebrities and they love to talk about them. You know, I'm, yeah. I, you know, I think naturally as a podcaster, you kind of want more emphasis on the actual platforms and the ecosystem itself more so than the celebrity, the celebritization of it all. And, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm a, a fan, almost a stan, uh, <laughs> in all the creative endeavors that you're going to dive into and where you're going to take it, you know, from one, you know, podcaster to a master podcaster. I just want to say on behalf of me, thank you for having people like you who look like me in certain spaces and being in certain areas and chartering a frontier that has never been touched before. You were literally no map, just kind of, <laughs> figuring it out as you go and leaving a trail for people like us to follow behind. And uh, it's an honor to have you on as a juror. Um, and just, you know, really quick before we wrap, I just want to talk about Signal a little bit. And yeah. um, 
originally like you came on you were on inaugural year our first year it's crazy because it feels like signal has been around for a little bit longer than it has but uh you were actually a webby judge first so you kind of had that was like kind of weird obviously you running your own award platform is kind of lends itself to it so you kind of are familiar with the nuances and creating a really fair system to Mm -hmm. really like it's really tough to give out awards especially in a community like like the webbies is insane like i look at the 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 massfulness of what the webbies are and i aspire like signal will be there soon one day uh that's our (laughs) sister that's our sister company so when they approached me about this award platform for signal the number one aspect that I wanted to figure out is how are we picking winners, right? Like, how does this happen? If we're not opening this up to some form of public voting, um, kind of like uh, in connection, or I'm sorry, in conjunction with, uh, with, with like a, a, a jurors panel, or in our case, a juror, a jurors academy, uh, mm-hmm. we need to have the people who are the movers and shakers, the people who are believers of podcasting. I don't want anyone. I mean, obviously there's, going to be some people who people value their opinions a lot right but people like yourself uh johnny dutch uh who else like all of our jurors really are people who have been in the podcasting field who have cut their teeth there who have made mistakes who have helped to re you know revitalize the infrastructure to help put podcasters first and make sure that they're profitable and also that the best work is always rising to the top right so you were a juror for the webbies talk about your experience for for judging for the webbies and then now your experience in the inaugural year and then heading into the second year, just a little bit of a, um, just kind of like a little bit of like a journey for us, if you will. Yeah. So when I started judging the Webbies, um, I also, I started judging podcasts for the Webbies too. So leading into Signal was actually pretty easy because I already had kind of the the mindset of like what to listen for and what to, to think of when I'm judging these entries. I think it's a little bit different between Webbies and signal and i hopefully this is not like given too much behind the scenes info but like with the webbies you're often ranking like they'll give you a category and then there's maybe about like i don't know five to ten nominees but you have to pick five and then rank them in the order that you want them to win so there might be several ones that you will like okay these would be good or whatever whereas with signal it's sort of like one category one nominee like you're kind of matching it up almost in that way so it's a lot easier with signal uh with webbies there's a lot that you have to listen through um to try to to try to make sure you know what you think would be the the best type of uh winner for that category right and it's it's tough for a few reasons i think the first reason it's tough is because dynamic ad insertion has made it such that when a company maybe submits an entry and say, oh, we want you to listen to this timestamp. The timestamp is not of the show. The timestamp is of an advertisement for like HelloFresh or whatever, or Brooklyn. And you're like, okay, do you want me to listen to the ad or do you want me to listen to the show? And then you have to listen to more of the show to try to like figure it out. Um, I think that's sort of one problem. I think another, I don't want to say this is a problem, but this is something I think people should know about these types of events, you know. Right. Companies that have large marketing budgets will be prone to flood categories with entries. This yeah. does not necessarily mean that these are the best. Right. These are just the ones that could pay to be in the judging arena to be judged. Right. So I want right. to be I want to be clear about that because I know we did the we did the Black Weblog Awards for many years for free, so people could just submit whatever. And then I think right. once we sold it, the the um the company that did it after that she started to charge for them i think not even a lot maybe like three dollars or something uh so not a not a ton and people were like oh my god i can't believe you're charged or whatever it's pay to play you know it's it's all that, sort that of term, pay to play i really it's hate it. i can't believe you're paying into it it's like well one it costs money to just take if the time people, this together. oh my goodness if people and, don't uh yeah, but secondly, also those those lovely statuettes that you all take pictures of and put those on social media are, are not cheap. They are very expensive to to put together, and like they have to be for the winners because like you could get yep. them manufactured and then they don't go to anybody, and it's right. all it looks, it looks, it's, it's it, whole uh, thing. And it's whole and it thing. looks terrible, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um. So when I'm judging, you know, I really want to make sure that it's fitting whatever the category is, and. Right. That often can mean sometimes a show is submitted in multiple categories, especially because categories with podcasts now, I think, are in a bit of a kind of like, it's kind of a mixed bag right now. It really because is. It's tough. 
because I think what people had started to go by for a long time were Apple's podcast categories for Apple Podcasts. Right, right. But then they shifted, I guess, based on what people are listening to. And so that means that sometimes a category that a podcast might already be in, like, say, you know, true crime or something, might be put into something like personal journals. And you're like, but is it a personal journal? Because it really sounds more like news or something like that. Yeah. But then also something that is news related could fall into technology. So you have to sort of weigh the merits of not just what the podcast is about, but how it fits the particular category. So like, that's one thing that I'm always kind of listening for. That's between doing Webby's going into Signal. I'd say it was a lot easier with Signal because with Webby's, again, you're getting five to 10 nominees. You have to listen through to each one and then try to rank them by what you think might be best. And then you'll notice, right. or at least I notice, it's like, oh, these are all like big brands. Where are the indie podcasters? Like it's all right. stuff from Audible or Wondery. And you know, they're great. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, right. there's other shows out there. For I know sure. that there are like, um, <laughs> with Signal, it's a lot easier because you sort of just have one show, one category. Yeah. And then what I'm thinking about as I do this is like, how well does this entry exemplify the category? Like, can I exactly. listen to this yeah. without a shadow of a doubt and think, oh, this could work for this? Um, there's a lot of celebrity podcasts out there. I, yeah. I personally feel like the celebrity podcast market is is so oversaturated. <laughs> it is probably going to get more saturated, to be yeah. quite honest, over the next... Look, we're recording this the day after um, SAG went on strike. Yep. So actors are going to be free because they can't talk about their work. Yeah, on that is true. That doesn't, I... that doesn't stop them from talking. Yeah, which means they're most likely going to get podcasts yeah. <laughs> and flood the market talking about all kind of random shit. But yep. like the there's there's more that has to happen with like celebrities interviewing other celebrities. It's like mm. it can't just be you with your famous friends. Like what's right. the what's the added draw? What are you bringing aside from your celebrity that like I can't hear on another show? You know right. what what right. are you doing to make it a unique experience? Like I'm really listening at this point for uniqueness. Because there's so many podcasts out there that are all, you know, at least from what I hear from nominees, are kind of operating at pretty much the same level of excellence. So it yeah. becomes a lot, you have to be a lot more stringent when judging because every show sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, every show sounds great. Every show's got good sound design. You know, if it's coming from like a big publishing house, like everything's going to sound great. So it's not about sound quality. It's about just the quality of the show and like, yeah. how is this pushing the medium forward or how yeah. is this a good representation of the category for the field? So that's what I'm always looking at when I'm judging. It's not just like, you know, oh, this is great because, you know, it was hosted by like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. So is it moving conversations forward? Like, is are they good interviewers? You know, like, like is, is are you doing more with it besides sitting behind the mic with your notoriety? Like, there's got to be more that you bring to the show than just that. If that's the only thing you're bringing, it's probably not going to be that good. That's not to say other people wouldn't judge it great because, you know, people have different rubrics and standards for this kind of stuff. But for me, I'm looking to see what's the best representation and what's helping push things forward. Like, What's the show that I'm going to listen to and be like, wow, I got to tell somebody about this. Not because it's hosted by comedian X or whomever or actor Y, but like you need to listen to this because it's doing this new interesting thing that I haven't heard anywhere else, which with, with as many podcasts as I've listened to is a rarity. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's really what I'm, what I'm judging for when I listen to shows and, and I'm ranking them either for Webby's or for Signal Awards. That's amazing. That That is incredible insight because I know sometimes people are a little, I think, I'm not going to say intimidated, but they're a little, they're a little bit more cautious when going into the jurors world. Like for the most part, like everyone I've reached out to, I'm very intentional on the judges we pick to put in the academy. So I normally try to go after people who are actively in the podcast community, not just, and not just from a creator standpoint, although there are, there is value from a creator standpoint, but from someone who is actually like submerged in the podcast world and actually, you know, navigating this and creating these platforms, ultimately that we, that we use or 
work with or collaborate with in some form or fashion. So I'm always honored when we bring the right people on like yourself and having that really great behind the scenes look for you and what your, you know, kind of like what your standard is for when you're judging or, you know, ranking podcasts, be it for Webby's or Signal, I think it's really important for people to hear like what you just said. This is, this is the way that I navigated. This is the way that I'm judging. There's obviously a great amount of work out there. So annually it gets tougher because the bar races, like when people see what these winners are and they go and listen to what they've done, you can't deny that they didn't deserve an award. Like everyone that got an award last year, for the most part, all of them, I would probably, I would, I, you know what? I'm going to be on the other side. I'm going to say all of them for the most part, all of the ones that I listen to and I'm a judge too. So I want everybody to understand that I'm in there too. Um, there was so there was, it was tough last year. There was such incredible work that was submitted and it wasn't just from like bigger studios. It wasn't from just celebrities. It was from independent podcasters who put their, you can tell the people who actually pay attention, put the work in, like you can hear it off the bat. And then it's such a joy because to me, I liken it to another, another uh, tool in discoverability. When you have these jurors attention and they listen to these podcasts, you might even be familiar with the brand, but maybe the episode they submitted, you weren't familiar with, or maybe they're, mm -hmm. you know, a guest on another podcast. I've come across such incredible podcasts. Like my list, my list of things to get to to listen to this weekend. Oh, this season is crazy. I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm like, I got to get through this. But no, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time out of your Friday. I know it's summer, summer Fridays for both of us. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, we had some technical issues, but we waited through. So uh, thank you so much, Maurice, for this. I, I can't tell you how uh, amazing it is to have a person of your knowledge and your depth and a person who has, you know, who has forged their own career and literally like you're like to me, if anyone, and this is, I'm not saying this is because you're my guest. I say this to people. <laughs> in general. Sometimes we need examples of what to do to figure out who we are. Right. So it's like people get in a podcast and feel, and they're like, look, I don't want to just be a creator. You know, I want to be a person that molds this industry for the better. I want to be a person that helps monetize, monetization, monetization. Sorry, I'm mm -hmm. tongue twisted on a Friday. Uh, that's the fatigue kicking in. But I want to be a person that, you know, helps, you know, middle and, you know, early on podcasters find a way to make a living off this, right? Like this industry is big enough and vast enough and, and resourced enough for people to make money, to monetize their brand, to monetize their creation, their IP. There's so many more, you know, journeys and battles to be fought in the podcasting space. So I always tell people, look, there's some movers and shakers who you might not hear much about because they don't get as much praise from the outside, you know, maybe because they shake the table, who knows why, or maybe... You know, some journeys, some journeys are best when you find them and they're not publicized. Right. So you get to a point where I think it's important for people like yourself to be a standard of people to kind of follow, because if not, then they don't know, they might be, you know, there's some information that they can learn. And that's one of the main, the main things for this podcast. I wanted to have some information of value, um, some fun, you know, kind of like journey uh, recaps for people and ultimately to just give flowers to people who have made this industry what it is and given me an opportunity to be in this, this particular role and any other role that I've been a part of, because with podcasting being so much more uh, important to the industry now, it's spawned careers that people probably couldn't imagine five, seven, eight years ago. And who's to say that people like you aren't responsible for those opportunities today, uh, whether it be directly or indirectly, um, the, the ripples of the ripples of, of, of action weigh really fast through the podcast industry. So uh, thank you so much on behalf of Signal and on behalf of myself. And we're looking forward to see everything that you're like you're judging this year. Looking forward to seeing you at the Signal event. I don't think you made it last year to the Signal event, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't make it last year. All right. Well, we'll I'm going to make sure I'm going to handwrite uh, a, a, a delivery for you. I'm going to send out an invitation. You will be in the room uh, in this year's Signal event, which is taking place in October, by the way. So we announce winners uh, beginning of October. End of October is the celebration. Um, so I'm looking forward to the second year being even bigger than the first and having people like yourself in the building. Um, I think it's really important to, to connect the dots in every room. And I think that's what the beauty of podcasting events bring, especially the signal event. So thank you so much. And uh, do you have any parting words to sign off on or just like anything you'd like to say to wrap up? Well, I mean, one, just thank you so much for, for having me on the show. I mean, I rarely kind of get a chance to like talk shop about podcasting mainly because I'm, podcasting every week myself. Yeah. So I really going to be on our panel too. So I'm looking forward to that extended discussion. So yeah, so I really kind of get this chance to like really, you know, sort of wax poetic on that. So thank you for that. And and also I think for people that want to check out my show, I mean check it out at revisionpath.com. 
You can find us anywhere you can find podcasts. Like I said, we have over 500 episodes. Jump in anywhere. Don't feel obligated anywhere. to just listen to episode one because episode one is trash. But like, jump in anywhere. Uh, there's some really great conversations with people that you may have heard of, people that you may not have heard of. Uh, and just take a, a look at all the creativity that's out there. Um, I um, Definitely, uh, like I said, thank you so much for having me here. It's been great. No problem. Thank you so much as well. I'm looking forward to checking out more of your incredible work. Uh, and also wrapping up episode three of the Signal Podcast. Appreciate you so much. Looking forward to discussing more with you uh, on our virtual panel coming up soon. And um, we'll we'll get that invite in the mail for to make sure that you're in the building this year. All right. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the rest of your beautiful hot Friday. And uh, we'll catch you <laughs> soon. Thank you, Maurice. All right. You too. All right.